Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Mac and Jack Sports Show here live Thursday through Sunday, 8 to 10 a.m., live on Roku TV, YouTube, and Facebook. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, legendary Boxing Hall of Fame writer Jack Hirsch, as we get you up to date on all the sports and news since we've been gone since Sunday, previewing a lot of stuff coming up in sports. And today on the show, Jack, scheduled is... Carter B., our NHL expert, and a special guest, John Turner, a welterweight contender, championship contender, uh, that will be joining us also. So um, they'll be on schedule at the 9 o'clock hour. So. Right. Did you use the word former Mac, former welterweight contender? Well, I could say he was. I mean, it's not currently. I mean, well, I mean maybe in today's, 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 I mean, today's I know you live in the past or degree, but that's going a bit overboard. <laughs> in today's boxing, Jack, he might be a welterweight contender. Well, and had a part in the movie Raging Bull. We're going to talk right. about that. Right. So it'll be excellent to have uh, John in at about nine o'clock where he's scheduled to be in. So, Jack. Let's let's start with probably the bit, a quick big story before we get into our other stuff. Um, Bruce Arians steps down and up, right? He 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 leaves the head coaching job at Tampa Bay, uh, turning it over to Todd um, to Todd Bowles, who signed a five year uh, contract with the Bucks. Um, you know. Robert Butler, who breaks a lot of our big stories and has a lot of insight on things, stated that maybe the rumors were kind of true that Arians and Tom Brady had some friction. Now, of course, Brady came out and said, you know, great things about Arians. But there were reports of friction between him and Brady. And Brady retired. Arians was still there. Then he unretires himself. And Arians is gone. So do you think maybe there is something to the working relationship between Brady and Arians? Well, I mean, I don't have any doubts that maybe there was some there was some friction there, but that's not totally uncommon with star quarterbacks and coaches. And when Tom Brady retired, there were no indications that Bruce Arians was going to step down. There were none at all. And since he's announced his comeback, uh, you know, it's, what was it, about three weeks ago or thereabouts? And Arians is stepping down after that. I don't, I think we're reading too much into this. I really think we are. Anything going on between Brady and, the, Brady and Arians could have been fixed, could have been dealt with, and maybe wasn't nearly as bad as made out to be. People love, you know, digging into these rumors and may, maybe making more out of it than they should have. Well, let's talk about Todd Bowles for a minute. He has head coached in the past, and he has not done so well. I think he was head coach of Miami, if I'm not mistaken. No, the New York Jets, Max. The Jets, Jets. yeah, yeah. The Jets. And his record wasn't that great, and uh, which is uh, you know a reason why he took a step down into coordinating, even though he's a great defensive coordinator. Being a head coach is two different things. Is Do you think this uh, hurts Tampa Bay, Todd Bowles, being there, uh, being head coach? Mac, the NFL offices are doing backflips now. They, they are so happy about 
what unfolded here because they've been criticized fiercely about the lack of African-American head coaches in the NFL. And this offseason, there were a lot of hirings, but we really didn't see much activity as far as uh, African-American head coaches making a serious run at getting these positions. And now Todd Bowles is getting the position, an African-American, you know, coach in a high-profile NFL job, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady. And listen, it's Todd Bowles' second go-around, but how many coaches have been given second chances and have succeeded? I mean, even a great Bill Belichick, he was given a second chance after being head coach of the Cleveland Browns. So it's not uncommon. Good for Todd Bowles. He only paid his dues. He was the you know, a Super Bowl winning defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just, you know, the season before last. So he's really earned this other opportunity to be a head coach. And a lot of people are going to be rooting for him to succeed. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I hope uh, I hope he does well. Of course, he has a good team that he's coaching, too. I mean, you've got a legitimate playoff Super Bowl contending team. It's not like he's at a a team that's rebuilding. So, I mean, that well, has a lot. Know, but, but what interested me, Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you would have thought he might be in line for the head coaching position too uh, with Tampa Bay since he paid his dues as the offensive coordinator. And he especially had reportedly a close relationship with Tom Brady so I kind of wonder, is there any little rumblings behind the scene as far as that, you know, goes? Because Leftwich has never had the opportunity to be a head coach in the NFL, whereas Bowles has. Yeah, I mean, Leftwich was in line to get the Houston job. Is that right, Jack? Uh, was it the Houston job he was in line well, to get? Well, there was talk about it, but then it went to Lovey Smith, you know, right. another African-American yeah, candidate. Right. As I said, the league is happy, but... You know, the league, the league can't force a team to hire a head coach, but they just came out with something, Max, since we're on the issue, that every team in the NFL, I think, has to hire, you know, an offensive head or something for their franchise. Yeah. You know, African-American. And I think they're pushing the envelope a little too far well, by well, trying well, to do the right thing. Well, the news is that, uh, since you brought it up, was that, Every NFL team has to hire a woman or minority uh, as an offensive assistant coach for one year. They'll be paid out of the NFL fund. The team won't be paying for this coach. The NFL will be. It's the first mandate under the Rooney rule where they're required to do this. This came out of the NFL owners uh, meetings. Uh, and the uh, head coach of the team is required to spend significant time with his assistant coach. So uh, why not defense, Matt? Why are we talking offense? The because NFL? because <laughs> the reason the, the reason why they said is because the game has turned into such an offensive uh game from what it used to be that this is where they think they would learn the most. The first mandate, I agree that maybe uh they're going too far with it. I've I've read some things from minorities that said they this is just ridiculous that they shouldn't have to require anybody that people should do this because they want to do this but 
um, the NFL forcing issue. There were some other things coming out of NFL owners meeting we'll talk about later, but uh, that was one of them about the offense. Mac, but can you imagine someone is going to be honest in a franchise? They're going to call in the minority candidate, and they're going to say, I'm going to be honest with you. I had so-and-so in mind, and that's the person I wanted, but the league is telling me I can't. Do it. I have to hire a minority candidate, and that's the main reason I'm hiring you, even though you have, you know, you're a good person, you know, for the job. You were in my first choice. Could you imagine that being said? Well, I think this is an extra position, Jack. I don't think it's in lieu of or in place of another one. I think it's an extra position that the NFL is mandating. Of course, the owners agreed to it. So, um, this is what it, does, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt when push comes to shove, you know, just creating an extra position, hiring. It's basically a training ground right, where you're right. working with the candidate, trying to develop their skills a little more, develop their knowledge, work with them. Maybe they work their way up in the ladder in the company. You know, I, I guess maybe we're making too big a deal out of it talking in length the way we are because it is, you know, it's not a negative thing when you look at it. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's negative at all, Jack. So uh, it's just, it's just, and the teams aren't paying for it. So the owners, uh, I guess they, they're taking it from the NFL fund. So let's get to the final four March madness real quick on April 2nd. You have Kansas versus Villanova and Duke at North Carolina. They're both on TBS. So uh, I think four good games. Uh, I would imagine Duke is a sentimental favorite now with St. Peter's gone because uh, of Coach K's last uh, year here. Duke has been playing uh, great basketball. Uh, you know, North Carolina is a great basketball team. Kansas is a great basketball team. And Vanilla, 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 Villanova. Vanilla is my nickname for my kids. Villanova has a great defense. Um, so it will be interesting to see who ends up in the championship. Uh, any thoughts? Mac, every Final Four game is big. It's two days before the finals. Obviously, Villanova and Kansas, both teams are going to be pumped up. But it's not a rivalry game. North Carolina, North Carolina and Duke is such a major rivalry game. It extends far beyond just being in the Final Four. And I kind of wonder, whoever wins that game emotionally, can they have it together two days later? The winner, North Carolina and Duke, is going to have to meet the winner, the Kansas-Villanova game. Can they get up for a game? Because they're going to be so emotionally drained, whoever wins North Carolina and Duke. Because it's not just a game to get to the finals. I mean, everything that's going into it, you know, you're beating your most hated rival in that game. And once you do it, there has to be a letdown and you hardly have time to regroup. So I think the winner, uh, Kansas Villanova, would be in a pretty good spot emotionally in the finals Monday night against Duke in uh, North Carolina. And Duke, North Carolina, what a compelling rematch. I mean, Coach K's last home game at Duke was spoiled by North Carolina defeating Duke. And rather than there being a big celebration that day, you know, it being Coach K's final game, the looks on the faces were somber. It was sad. It wasn't a celebration. 
But of course, there's a wonderful story. Duke has defied the odds. They've got to the final four. Worst case scenario, if Duke loses Saturday, look, they Coach K went to the final four in his last year. That's a heck of an accomplishment. But if he's to lose, you the, the Duke alumni, they don't want it to be against North Carolina. Well, it'll be, it should be a real good game, I would think, Jack, either way it goes. Quick word about St. Peter's, as I told you, and most of the people that were listening, uh, they won their championship uh, the game before. That was their celebration. They kind of spent themselves. I, I kind of feel bad in a way because St. Peter's will be a, a story, a stat in the future about the a 15 team going to the Elite Eight. But they were only two games away, Jack. And I really believe that they could have played uh, against... Well, one game away from the Final Four. Right, but I'm talking about two games away from the championship. They were here, they they had a shot, and if they continued playing the way they were playing, they could have gave anybody in this Final Four a game, maybe one, but instead, uh, they pretty much got blown out in the Elite Eight game. And again, I think the coach there, who was very calm, uh, reserved, after they beat the powerhouse Kentucky, I mean, they they beat Kentucky after that game. Uh, he, was, he was like, "Yeah, we're having fun. We're here. We're we're good." Uh, I think, I think that that was a missed opportunity. Is all I'm saying. So, uh, congratulations. Well, they to- went as far as they could go, Mac. Mac. It's not like they lost the heartbreaker. They went as far as they could go, and now their coach, you know, while they were still celebrating the greatest year in school's history as far as, you know, men's basketball. You know, Coach Wendt is going to Seton Hall, but you can't fault him for it because he's going back to, you know, his alma mater. I mean, how do you fault someone for going back to their alma mater? Isn't it the dream of every coach, you know, who played for school that he goes elsewhere and then comes back? You know, there was a story you mentioned, Duke, before that hasn't really been talked a lot about and uh coach k is stepping down and the school wanted to offer the position to tommy amica who played for coach k at duke in the 1980s when duke made their first final four they didn't quite win the championship then but they set the trend for the following duke teams and coach k had his own guy in mind yeah, uh, so he had to call up Tommy Amica to tell him, basically ask him not to accept the position if the school offered it to him, which makes, which sets up an interesting thought. Why would the Duke, why would Duke University go against Coach K's wishes and offer the head coaching job in basketball to someone who Coach K doesn't prefer? Shouldn't they have been working hand-in-hand with Coach K? But then again, uh, the university may have thought, look, he played for Coach K. He was a captain on Coach K's teams. And Tommy Amica has a lot of experience coaching elsewhere. So he was the guy they really wanted. But Coach K had a difficult difficult conversation with him on the phone to ask Tommy Amica not to take the position. And by all accounts it broke Tommy Amica's heart. 
Yeah, I, I don't know, Jack. I think it's up to the university. I mean, I, 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 if I'm a university or any kind of thing, I mean, thank you, Coach K, but, you know, now it's our turn to make a decision. Uh, you know, if we want a player or a coach and you decide you we th you think we should be going another direction, uh, I'm sorry, but you don't run the university, no matter how great a head coach you were. And that's, that's to me, is the bottom line. But, you know, whatever they want to do there, I guess, I guess there is respect, a lot of respect for Coach K. But still, it's your, it's your, it's your program. It's not Coach K. So, uh, but Coach K has been there 46 I years. I don't care if he's been there it's, since the, the school started, Jack. He's not. Uh, but Coach K is, he's going to continue as an ambassador to the school, yeah, but yeah. he's going to kind of oversee the basketball program. He's kind of, kind of going to be a de facto GM of the basketball program, yeah, but not, yeah, not a coach. Yeah. You know, Shaheen Holloway just, you know, that was the, uh, we wish him luck at Seton Hall, you know, just to, ba you know, to backtrack a little bit, leaving St. Peter's. He had a great run there, but no one should criticize Shaheen Holloway for leaving uh, St. Peter's to go to Seton Hall. Because St. Peter's had a great run. They don't have the money to put in the program. They probably don't have the money to pay him as a head coach that Seton Hall is doing. So sometimes someone, a coach makes a move and people are a little critical of it. But this, Mac, let me throw this at you. There's no right time for a college coach to make a move. You want to know why? You recruit players. You recruit them after one year, and let's say they want to be there three, four years. They feel like you're leaving them, like you're abandoning them. But it's always going to be that way because you're always recruiting new players every year. So at some point, you got to get off the train and leave them. And they might feel a little bit betrayed. But I don't think anyone at St. Peter's should feel that way with Shaheen, you know, Holloway. I mean, they had a great run at St. Peter's and. You know, students that go to that school are always going to remember. They're always going to talk for years about going to the final eight. Oh, well, I, I got no problem with them leaving either. But as far as, again, I want to go back to Duke before you change the, the conversation back to St. Peter's. I don't think that Coach K should be an ambassador or work as a de, de facto GM for Duke. If you're going to retire and you're going to move on, you retire and move on. But otherwise, continue coaching. To me, that's that's a, a waste of a time that's going to cause problems with the athletic director and maybe with the new head coach. I think it's a bad idea, Jack. I think if he wants to be an ambassador and talk about Duke, great, but he shouldn't be involved in the program after leaving. Mac, yeah. I'm going to throw something at you that you're going to be flabbergasted to hear. Absolutely. I'm not predicting this happens, but I'm saying I wouldn't be shocked I'm the guy who told you Tom Brady, not to be surprised if Tom Brady makes a comeback. I wouldn't be completely shocked, Matt, if Coach K comes back for one more year, announces, maybe I announced my retirement a little soon. I'd like to coach one more year because they're having a heck of a year. Now, if they win the NCAA tournament, the answer is no. He's going to want to go out completely on top but if they have to lose to north carolina he might look at his squad and say we have a good squad i still love coaching i love this run i announced my retirement too early we went to the final four i want to stay on another year and his assistant scribe i think the name is you know mike 
agree, you know, let's delay Coach K's retirement a year or two more, okay? And uh, I'm, I'm not just 100% sure this retirement is going to stick. Oh, whatever. I mean, I, I, I really don't they care that much. Care less Mac. No, I really don't care if Coach K retires or not, Jack. I really not, don't. But he's been a credit to the sport. College basketball. He's one of the greatest coaches of all time. I mean, uh, when we not, talk about the greatest college coaches of all time, based on accomplishment, longevity, obviously John Wooden would be number one, and then maybe Coach K number two. What do you think? Maybe, maybe it all depends. It may be a little harder to win now. Uh, in the in the NCA than it was back then too, Jack. So I mean, with all the players leaving and going and and leave, taking one year, so you really didn't have it. They don't have a chance to build their programs like UCLA did. But I would agree, though. Those are the top two anyway. So uh, there you go with that. So um, before we get into the NHL, let's start off with the basketball, right? Um, NBA standings again. The Heat wrapped up. Uh, the first seed at 49 and 28. The Bucks are behind them at 47 and 28. The 76ers in third at 46 and 29, followed by the Celtics at 47 and 30. The Bulls at 44 and 32. And the Raptors uh, move into sixth plates at 44 and 32. Um, the West, you have the Suns who have wrapped up the first seed at 62 and 14. The Grizzlies have wrapped up a playoff spot. At 54 and 23, Dallas has moved ahead of the Warriors at 48 and 29. The Warriors, it's by a percentage, Jack. Warriors are at 48 29 too. Denver at 46 and 31, and Jazz has dropped to the sixth position. Um, so that's your standings right now. Uh, I'm so happy the Grizzlies have wrapped up a playoff spot. I really hope that they really do some damage in the playoffs. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the East. It's so close and so up and down that right now I think any of those top four teams maybe could win it, depending if the Celtics stay healthy because they don't, they're not as deep as the other teams. So I think any four of those teams could win the East right now. Um, in the games last night, Dallas won 20, Cleveland won 12. The Wizards beat the Magic 127-110. Denver over the Pacers 125 118, the Heat beat the Celtics 106 to 98. Hornets 125, the Knicks 114. The Raptors 125, Minnesota 102. Hawks kill the Thunder 136, 118. The Grizzlies slide by the Spurs 112 to 111. The Suns beat the Warriors 107, 103. And the Pelicans beat Portland 117 to 107. Mac, the, it's all about playoff positioning, a game that might not have seemed too big to the average fan was big. The Grizzlies beating the Spurs by one point last night. Do you realize San Antonio and the Lakers are tied for the last playing spot? <clears throat> tied. Had San Antonio won yesterday and the playoffs on play-in tournament would have began, the Lakers would have been out. They wouldn't have even made the play-in tournament. That's how bad they are. They're, both teams have, what, like something like a 31-42 and 42 record. I mean, and it's all about playoff positioning, too. For example, in the East, the Toronto Raptors are one game ahead of the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Raptors are the sixth seed. 
the Cavaliers are the seventh seed, but it cuts off after six seeds. And it's going to be a lot of implications for the Brooklyn Nets because if Cleveland passes Toronto, the Nets have to have the play-in game against Toronto, in Toronto. So how is that going to play out if it comes down to that? Okay, Kyrie Irving wouldn't be allowed to play in those games in Toronto. So, you know, but if they're playing at Cleveland, he would be allowed to play there. So there's so many like different implications and storylines. You know what I find a big story? The Phoenix Suns. They've been far and away the best team in the NBA. Are the Suns going to continue to be that? Is this their year to win a championship, or do they hit the bump in the road? You take a team like the Celtics, who come on like gangbusters. Will they keep it up, or will they hit a wall, or will the Milwaukee Bucks reassert themselves for the playoffs? Do the Sixers have enough of a bench? You mentioned the Celtic bench, but you know the Sixers don't seem to have that strong a bench. So will a player like Tobias Harris step up? There's so many storylines. Well, you know, interesting you brought Toronto because there is a possibility if Toronto does win that the Celtics might play Toronto and a couple of their star players do not have their, uh, and you know, their their shots. But it either. wouldn't be in a play and it wouldn't be a one and done game. No, okay? I know. I know. But yeah. it still would be for a, a significant amount of games. So uh, the Celtics might lose one or two players if they had to go to Toronto for the three, three of those games. So who knows what could happen there too? So that's interesting. Uh, that whole thing is interesting. Um, a question for you: You're talking about the Phoenix Suns, the best team in basketball, maybe. Um, if the Warriors get healthy, all the way healthy, at their best, do they beat the Suns? Well, they played them last night, and tough, tough game that Phoenix won. It went down to the wire, but there was no Seth Curry. Right. I don't think so. At one point, I thought this second-year player who is really good, their big man, James Wiseman, who's been injured all year, would come back. But now it's been announced he's not coming back. He's going to be out for the season. I think Draymond Green might be a little long in the tooth. Clay Thompson has made a remarkable comeback after being out a couple of years, you know, with injuries. Uh, but is he quite the Clay Thompson of the past? Maybe he's going to be at times, and even though he's played well and made, like I said, a remarkable comeback, I, I just don't think this is the same Golden State team that we remember who was always in the championship mix. So my answer would be no. I, I think Phoenix would be the better team in the playoffs as, as they've been during the regular season. Well, we shall see, Jack, because I ain't going to count the Warriors out uh, if they're healthy, that's for sure. Because if they start shooting and making their shots, there ain't there ain't hardly any team that can stay with them. Uh, Phoenix should, should, uh, uh, you know, go to the championship this year. But we'll see what happens. Well, Devin Book on the Suns, for him to be a real star in this league, he needs that championship. They get the championship, Devin Booker, you know, Turns out to be one of the big names in the NBA. He's not that right now, even though he's played as such, but he slipped a bit under the radar because Phoenix hasn't won an NBA title. Yeah, yeah that's true, I guess. Um, um, and there are a couple a couple of things in the news uh, in NBA. Julian Randle denies a trade request. 
uh, from the Knicks. There was rumors of that. Um, you know, Randall, of course, last year looked like he would be almost a franchise player. He played so well this year. They're having a lot of problems over well, there. Julius Randall will help teams, Mac, but what can the Knicks get a big value for Julius Randall? I don't see teams giving up a great deal for him. It's not like they're going to give up three number one draft choices. He's not that type of player. I mean, he's a good player. He could be a major help to a contending team, a major help. I agree. But what would they be willing to give up? And they're not going to give up an established player in return or an outstanding young player, one that has a lot of upside. So it's it's a tricky situation. Like R.J. Barrett, you could get something really good in return for him. You really can because there's upside. He's young. Uh, you know, and he doesn't have the big contract as of yet. But Julius Randle, you know, is making good money, established. And this game has fallen off a bit this year. Let's be yeah. honest about it. He's been good, but he hasn't been very good. Yeah, so Embiid is a little upset with the 76ers game plan against the Bucks. The 76ers were up by, I think, 12 when they pulled him. And Giannis stayed in and went on a run. And then they put Embiid back in. Embiid says... They've got to match uh, the the uh, the time with Giannis. If they play against Giannis, MB wants to be on the floor all the time that Giannis is on the floor, Jack. You know, now this is an interesting thing, Matt. Could Embiid have said that in private, just met with Doc Rivers and said, Coach, this is the way I think we should do things, you know? I want to be on when he's on. Have a good discussion about it. And then if you discuss it behind closed doors enough and the coach doesn't accommodate you, then if you mention it to the media, I don't have a problem with that. But as he talked about it with the coaches, he talked about it with the GM, says, look, I want to be on the floor with Giannis, work that out. Then, like I said, if you're not doing it, then complain publicly. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's the way they handle it today, Jack, for a lot of times. Uh, they want the instant pressure to put on somebody uh, and they go to social media. I think it's wrong too. Always have. Uh, but anyway, uh, backstage right now, folks, we got our NHL expert, uh, Carter B, who will be coming in and giving us our update. <laughs> Carter, do you know that song, or did you just start hearing that when you came on uh, on the show? That that hockey song is that? Have you have you known that before you came on the show? I might have heard it like once or twice, but uh, no, not really. I, I picked that out. There's a lot of old country folk songs about the good old hockey game. Um, and I, I found this one by a, a punk rock group. And I said, I got to have that song. And we'll be bring Carter in. So, Carter, welcome to the show. As Carter, as you know, folks, comes in every Thursday at 830. Give us our NHL update. And, man, we're getting down to the wire, Carter. I mean, this is... This is this is getting really close to playoff time. Even the teams that are contending 
uh, are really starting to go at it, trying to position themselves uh, for that at least wild card position, if not in the top three. So um, I, I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over real quick uh, where they're at right right now as far as as far as the standings. And I'm going to stop every now and then and and ask you to comment on not just the team, but the divisions, because I'm not sure what divisions are tougher than others or if there is such a thing, right? For Like, example, the Atlantic Division, you have Tampa Bay, the Panthers, Toronto, and Bruins. That's a, that, Those are four real good teams, and that seems like a very tough division to me. They're all at each other's throats. They're all very talented. you got the last year's uh, you know, Stanley Cup winner in there. Uh, battling with these three other teams, you know, as opposed to, say, the Central Division, where the Avalanche is a very good team, and then it kind of drops off. So if you're looking at the divisions, you take the Atlantic, the Metropolitan, the Central, and the Pacific, I mean, what division, in your opinion, Carter, is probably the most competitive and toughest division in hockey right now? Um, normally I would say the Metro, but, uh, I would have to go with the Atlantic. I just think with the way those teams, uh, you know, they're, they're packed together so tight at the, uh, at the top that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really going to be an interesting finish to see who finishes where. And, um, you know, at this point, I mean, you, you really got to watch out for anybody in that Atlantic division because either of those four teams could play each other in the first round of the playoffs. It's that tight. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think everybody sees the Metro as kind of this, like, you know, powerhouse division that, you know, obviously you have the Penguins and Capitals who won Stanley Cups in the last, uh, you know, uh, six or seven seasons. But, uh, you know, with uh, with the way they're playing right now, I, you know, I would definitely have to say the uh, the Atlantic division. Uh, Claude, uh, what about the Western uh, Central Division? I mean, you have six teams. I mean, the sixth place team, Winnipeg, is 133 and lost 25. That's a sixth place team. And you have the powerful Colorado Avalanche, you know, Minnesota's won twice as many as they've lost, you know, St. Louis, Nashville, even Dallas, you know, is 37 and 25 with five ties and then fifth place. I mean, that, I mean that's quality a division like that. Yeah, the, uh, you know, after Colorado, I mean, it's kind of like the Atlantic, right? I mean, you know, you got Minnesota and St. Louis that are, um, you know, kind of jockeying for home ice in that, uh, you know, two, three uh, series that's going to happen. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens at the wild card, too. I mean, you have Nashville right now in the first uh, the first slot. And I, I personally think Dallas could, you know, could make a run considering they have a few games in hand on the uh, – on the Golden Knights, who they're currently, I think, one or two points behind at the moment. So, um, yeah, I mean, the uh, you know the 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 Central is definitely looking like a uh, competitive division too, and um, you know each team that's in there is definitely making a case that you know they could make some noise in the postseason. Are the Golden Knights going to reap the benefits of the Jack Eichel trade this season? Or are they going to have to wait a year or two on that? Um, I I, I think it depends. I mean. Uh, you know, they've definitely struggled with a lot more injuries outside of, uh, you know, outside of the kind of the bigger picture. Right. So, um, I mean, obviously, uh, the captain Mark Stone and Alec Martinez are still hurt. Those are two big pieces of their team. 
uh, Robin Leonard, their starting net minor, went down the other day in practice. So, um, you know, I, I think Vegas is really struggling with the injury bug this year. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's uh, if it's accurate to say they'd reap the benefits this year. But, yeah, I definitely think, you know, they come back next year with a healthy lineup and, um, you know, they could, uh, you know, when they're fully healthy, I believe they're one of the better rosters in the league. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of have to wait and see how it plays out. But uh, I definitely think next year they could be, a uh, you know, right back at the top of the West. So, so we're talking about tough divisions, and, and of course, it looks like there's weaker divisions. I mean, I, it's hard to say that because in any sport, we call a weaker division in the Atlanta Braves, for instance, in baseball, in the weaker division comes up and wins the World Series. So you never know. But do you give an advantage to a team coming out of a tough? Say, let, let's go back to the Atlantic for a minute. Say uh, the Bruins come out of that that division, and and they're ready to go to Stanley Cup. Do you think the Bruins, because of the teams they play during the regular season that they're in their division and the teams that they're going to be dealing with the playoffs, does that give them an advantage or does it really matter when it comes down to the end? Um, Not really. I mean, you know, I'm sure other people have opinions about this, but I believe when the playoffs start, you kind of hit the reset button and you forget about what happened in the regular season. Um. You know, with uh, with Boston, I don't see them making it that far. Personally, I think they, uh, you know, they upgraded their defense the trade deadline, but I still think they got some holes in their forward group. So, um, you know, I, I definitely think they could go on to beat one of the higher seed teams in the Atlantic, but um, you know, I, I just don't see it happening with the way that Florida is playing, with the way Tampa is playing, even Toronto. I mean, they they beat them pretty good the other day, so. Um, you know, uh, but Boston's a bit of a wild card for me. But again, anything can happen in the playoffs. So we'll kind of have to wait and see how it plays out. So so when we yeah, the format, from what I understand, it, of course, it went back to the old one is you have the top three teams in each division, followed by the two teams with the next best record, giving you 16 uh, total teams, if I'm saying it right, Carter. Um, so when you're looking at these playoffs, and a lot of people criticize uh, sports that have a lot of playoff games, right? That they do, and they have more teams in it, it seems, than the regular season. Baseball is starting to go there. Uh, basketball is already there. Um, what do you say to these people? I mean, listen, your regular season isn't as long as baseball by any means. I think it's half. So what do you say to people that say, well, the regular season really doesn't mean anything anymore. It's all about the playoffs and seeding. So teams aren't really going to fight hard in the regular season because all they're looking for is getting the playoffs. Um, I would have to, to disagree with that. I think, uh, you know, I mean, a game in December might not matter much, you know, when you look at it immediately. But um, who knows? I mean, if you lose that game and you go on to miss the playoffs by a point, you know, you're gonna you're gonna wind up regretting that a little bit right so I think every game definitely matters but you know as is with any sport as you know as you get down the stretch and you're battling for playoff position I think all the games start to um you know definitely start to to amplify themselves in terms of how much they matter to your record and um you know I mean I don't really see a problem with the regular season I think 82 games is perfectly fine I wouldn't make it any longer or shorter unless, you know, unless it's like a season like last year where you kind of had to, you know, shorten the uh, the workload for the sake of saving the season. So, um, 
I mean, yeah, I, I don't really see a problem with the with the format. The only thing I would change personally is, um, you know, how the playoffs are kind of structured. I would go back to the kind of like how the NBA does it with the one versus eight and the you know so on and so forth format. I don't. I'm not a big fan of the wild card, um, you know, uh, formatting. But uh, I don't work at the NHL, so I you know I I don't really have a say in that. Get used to it, Carter, because in this day and age, if anything. They're going to add more wild card teams as they go along, okay? So we haven't seen the last of it. We're it, we're not going to they're not going to cut back and have no wild card teams or less teams making the playoffs. They're just going to expand it by a few. I mean, it's here to stay. I think in all the sports. I mean, not just hockey. Uh, I guess. I mean. I just don't understand. Like I'm, I'm looking at the standings right now. You got Nashville, who's got 82 points. They're sitting in a wild card spot. How is Edmonton automatically making the playoffs if they have one less point than them? I, I, I don't think that's right. I, I like Edmonton's third in the Pacific right now, and, and Nashville's in a wild card spot, but Nashville has more points. That yeah, but you want to no know sense. something that works that way? Like in football, for example, one team might miss out being a wild card team in the NFL, and they could have like a 10 and seven record, but another team within their division can go eight and nine, but they get first place within a weak division. It's kind of like a little bit of luck in the luck of the draw. I wanted to ask you this, uh, a player that was much maligned was Joe Skinner. I was watching a Sabre game recently on ESPN plus, believe it or not, not, not a whole game, but part of the game. And Joe Skinner, he was really put down savagely in Buffalo. They expected so much more out of him, and he was considered the ultimate failure. Is he the comeback player of the year? Because he's had a, a heck of a year. Um, I I would definitely put him up there. I think uh, you know with the way Jeff Skinner's played in Buffalo, it's uh, you know he's got either twenty eight or twenty nine goals in the season. So. Um, you know, I, I, again, I mean, I think people yeah, that, what, what, like seven last year. Yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't have a good uh, year last year, although I don't think anybody on Buffalo did. So, um, but uh, you know, I mean, he's making $9 million a year. He's definitely expected to, to put pucks in the back of the net and just, you know, uh, be a player that the Sabres can rely on for offense. And um, you know, it's nice to see him bounce back this year. I mean, personally, I, I'm one of his, you know, bigger fans. I, I So, uh, you know, I, I definitely like to see the way Jeff Skinner's playing right now, and especially on a Buffalo team that might have something to prove ever since they, you know, they kind of moved on from Jack Eichel. Um, you know, they're, they're looking towards the future now, and I think Skinner's going to be a big part of that for this uh, for this up-and-coming Buffalo team. One of our main guests on this show is the Philly sports guy, and I think it's gotten to the point with PAGs where the Flyers seem to be beyond hope, at least now. Is that your feeling with the Flyers? Are they a franchise in disarray? Are they moving in the right direction? Are they sliding backwards? What's the deal with them in your view? I stopped paying attention to them, if I'm being honest. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I think the, the goal for Philly this year, I think, is just to finish out the season strong. I mean, um, you know, the, this season's been, uh, you know, bit a bit of a train wreck for them. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I personally, I'm not a huge fan of the, the Rasmus versus the line in extension. I don't think he's a very good player. So I don't, you know, see why you're, why you're extending him for five years. at such a high cap hit. But again, I, I, you know, 
I'm, I don't work for Philly, so I can't comment on that. Um, I like the Giroud trade. I think they got good value for him. Um, you know, I, I think outside of that, though, you kind of, you know, you, you wait Isn't till the Isn't Giroud like a rental for Florida this year, like an all or nothing type thing? Um, I I definitely think he could re-sign in Florida. I think, you know, the depending on how how he feels and if he wants to return to Philly or not. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he resigns in Florida, if he goes to Philly, I really wouldn't be surprised with any outcome at this point with him. But, uh, you know, again, I mean, things can change so quickly in terms of, um, you know, what players want to do in free agency, you know, depending on how, how far the Panthers go in the playoffs. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of have to wait and see how it plays out with Giroux, but, um, well, you know, his any, kids go to school in the Philly area, and he's from there spending all the years with the Flyers. But I think when you get used to the warm Florida weather and the atmosphere, you know, it, it, all of a sudden the temptation is too great to go back to Philly. So I, I would think he'd maybe uproot his family to Florida. You know, that would be that, – that, that, that's what I think a player's mentality is. It has a lot to do with the weather, the conditions – because let's be honest, unless your name is Mac, if you have a choice to play in Buffalo or the Miami area, most players are going to want to play in Miami just for the weather. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't blame him if he uh, if he decided to do that. But, uh, you know, again, I mean, things like this change so quickly that, um, you know, it's kind of a wait-and-see type of approach with this. You know, I, I, I think that it doesn't just have to do with the weather and taxes either. I think – Players want to play on a good, good foundation of a team. I think they want to make a, a couple dollars. I think they want to win too. Otherwise, you know, all the Florida teams and Texas teams will be winning all the time. So I, I think that that may have a little bit to do with it, but I don't think that's a major consideration. If Buffalo was a first place team right now, I would imagine players would be very happy to go up in the cold weather and play for Buffalo if they had a chance and maybe go on and get a Stanley Cup. So I think that still has a lot to do with where players go. Carter, um, when, we, you know, Jack mentioned the Flyers, right? And and we know that a new ownership came in and a new management team and, and you know, a big corporation instead of, uh, you know, instead of the the single owner or family owners uh, of, of, a, of a team. And you see this in throughout the history of sports um, where – a big corporation moves in, they figure they can make some money off of it, and they really don't know nothing about running an organization. It happened to the Yankees. It's happened to a lot of different sports franchises. So I still feel that the best kind of ownership is a personal uh, uh, owner or a little group that really can take interest in their team because, you know, if you have a big corporation with a lot of different things going on, this may be just, you know, look at what I got and, you know, we own this team and they're a good team and we're going to make money. How important do you think that is when, when you're, say, for instance, for the Islanders, for the Rangers, for teams locally? I mean, don't you feel that maybe having major corporations owning franchises like they did with the Flyers does nothing but hurt the team and hurt the sport? Um. Yeah, I mean, if I'm looking at it from from a perspective of the Islanders, I definitely think, uh, you know, like John Ledecky and Scott Malkin, the two uh, the two guys who purchased the team back in 2015, they did an outstanding job at, um, 
you know, kind of bringing in the the people required to change the culture around the Islanders. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of having corporations own sports teams. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it, you know, there, there's certain aspects where it might be better. But, um, you know, I mean, owners who are truly invested in a team, you, you can't get any more better than that. Right. So, um, you know, I mean, again, Ledecky and Malkin, I think, are the best example of of how fast a a, a culture like that can change. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously they were responsible for bringing, uh, bringing in Barry Trotz and Lou Lamarillo. So, um, you know, I mean, again, when, when you're when your ownership truly cares about your team and wants them to win, they can they you know, they, they're able to pull a few strings and try and get the uh, the, the talent that's required to do so. So, um, uh, yeah, that's kind of you know kind of my thoughts on that yeah i, I agree 100 i mean i i think the the, the, the owner's got to love the team as much as he loves money uh to do something uh like what happened with the islanders and 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 that they have a vested interest in the islanders winning as opposed to just making money off the team so that's it for today uh carter of course we're getting closer to playoffs so this is going to be more and more exciting as the weeks go on um any any th- any thoughts about any team for next year besides your Islanders that may have a big bounce back year uh, where they were where they were you know near the top kind of fell off a little bit? I know you feel the Islanders will. Uh, is there any other team out there that you think might do the same? Um, when they're fully healthy, I would have to say Vegas. Um, I mean, not not that they're entirely out of it right now, but they they shouldn't be battling for a wild card spot. They should be you know, at the top of the Pacific, cementing themselves as, uh, you know, as a true Stanley Cup contender. So um, I'd have to go with them. I mean, maybe Winnipeg. I expected mm-hmm. Winnipeg to make it too. Um, you know, so with their roster, I, I definitely think they can, uh, you know, they can make it next year in a relatively weak, uh, you know, weak Western Conference. Okay, Carter, I want to thank you for coming in. As you, I do every Thursday, bringing us up to date with the hockey news and scores. Um, folks, uh, check him out. He does post sometimes in, in Facebook. We grab him when we can on major deals and stuff like that. Carter B., our NHL expert, again, every Thursday around 830 here on the Mac and Jack Sports Show. Carter, have a great Thursday, a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. You too, guys. Take care, Carter. So there you go, folks. Our update with Carter B. on the NHL. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get to our first break today, as I said, on the other side, we have scheduled in John Turner, former title, welterweight title contender, uh, will be on. And, of course, he also did uh, some work in Raging Bull. And we'll see if he comes in after the break in the 9 o'clock segment. And we're going to be right back after these messages, Jack. Um, if, if my board cooperates. You know, I, you know I, sometimes I just do this just to you. Is Johnny in the studio yet? No, he's not, Jack. Johnny is uh, not. Studio maybe I'll yet. give him a call during the break. Yeah, tell, tell ask yeah. John what's going on so we can make sure he gets yeah. it. I think this would probably probably be his you first know, time. You know the way these old fighters are, Mac. I mean, yes. we got to keep after them. Yes, uh, I, I'm one myself. You got to keep after. I mean, not a good one, but he was yes. a good one. Yes. Yeah. So we'll be right back after these messages, folks.
You worked too hard, you ate too much, the cheesecake made you greedy. Let your aching head and stomach hear this message from old Speedy. Alka-Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Oh, Speedy Bubbles, relieve your upset stomach and headache fast. For acid indigestion alone, Alka-Seltzer Gold. Oh, what a relief it is. What a relief. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Okay, how about tasting the stew and telling me what you think? Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. When the job is done, this guy will be ready to dig into something mighty good to eat. How do you handle a hungry man, the manhandlers? One of the manhandlers is Campbell's Vegetable Beef. Gets a man-sized supper off to a good hot start. Mmm, good. The manhandlers. If you're talking, they will hear you. Every single time. Oh, we get killed. Yeah, well, Kyle's not here. How come? Kicked off the team. Didn't Tim tell you? Kyle's mother kids got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Come on, it's a first offense, right? That we know of. But why should that matter? He knew not to drink. I've made it clear to Matt, that's what we expect from him. What have you said to Tim? Um... Nothing really. You know, a lot of kids try it at this age, so... I... Yeah, well, a lot of kids don't try it, too. I'm not saying that Matt's going to be this perfect kid, but if I don't tell him what we expect and why he shouldn't drink, how's he going to know? You think kids that age really listen? <laughs> they never admit it, though. But they hear more than you think. Talk. They hear you. 
For more information about talking with kids about underage drinking, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning. You're listening to the Mac and Jack Sports Show on Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show as we're live Thursday through Sunday, uh, 8 to 10 a.m., live on Roku TV, YouTube, and also on Facebook. And, Jack, we got a very special guest uh, backstage. I'm excited about having him, and I'm glad you hooked us up. Uh, folks, we have uh, one of the uh, special guests who was a, a welterweight Former welterweight, he's not boxing welterweight right now, as Jack pointed out, which I think he could in today's boxing. He could probably uh, jump out there with a couple of those guys as they do in them specials. Uh, but Johnny Turner, former welterweight title contender, and also did a little work on uh, Raging Bulls, Jack is informing me. I, I didn't have a chance to go back and watch it to see if he did any work over there, what he did, but let's work, welcome Johnny on. And... Uh, yeah, how you doing? How you doing today, Johnny? Very good, thank you. How you hey, doing? Johnny, how you guys doing? Yes, yes, we're, we're doing real good, Johnny. Johnny, um, I like to ask all our boxing guests. We have a lot on with Jack's work in boxing. Uh, how did you get started in in the world of boxing? What made you want to get involved in boxing, Johnny? I started very young, young when Coney Allen. Right? That's where I was born, and um, then that when I really got really uh involved in it i was looking for a gym to go to and i found out it was a pal on snyder and flatbush avenue and my brother took me there i went up to talk to joe laguardia and he really didn't want to put me in a ring right then because he thought i was too skinny and frail so he was afraid to put me in a ring he thought i'd get hurt so we called um he finally put me in a ring and i think he was very impressed and that's when jack hirsch was there and former middleweight champ Vito Antifermo was there and he was so impressed, he wanted to put me right in the Golden Gloves. Wow. And I never had a fight before. I just, so he, I did one sparring or two sparring sessions, and then he started training me for the gloves. And that was it. I went to Golden Gloves. I went to the, the first year, I went to the semis. The second year, I went to the semis. The third year, I went to the finals. And I lost to Dominic Monaco. Wow. I'll tell you, that loss to Monaco had to sting a little bit because the year before you had beaten him in the gloves in the quarterfinals and three-round fights, it didn't help you at being a three-round amateur fight because you had a hard time getting off in that fight. And it was in front of a packed house in Madison Square Garden. But the third round when you rallied, that was one of the great rounds in Golden Glove history. And, you know, the Everyone got up and gave you you guys a standing ovation at the end of the third round. You had a big, big third round, but it only being a three round fight kind of worked against you. Well, I finally woke I finally woke up in the third round. <laughs> the first uh, round I was I'll be, I'll be I was overconfident. I I beat him twice, very easy. Once in the Golden Gloves, and then we had a smoker with Joe Laguardia. I beat him again, 
very easy. So going now, we went to Ireland to fight the Irish, me and him together. Came back to New York. We both went to gloves. We both went to the finals. And I said, and, and I said to myself, I'll beat him again. But I was too comfortable, too relaxed. And you never can be like that going into a big fight like that. You have to have, be a little nervous, have some butterflies. You can't go into a fight overconfident, who matter who you fight. And I did. There's a story Mac doesn't know that he's going to get a big kick out of. Now, you boxed on ABC, as an amateur on ABC's wide world of sports and international competition. And your coach, Joe LaGuardia, had a run-in with Howard Cosell because of you during the fight itself. Why don't you tell us what happened during the fight with Howard Cosell? Well, I was fighting a southpaw. And we call, he kept on yelling at me, Howard Cosell, throw the right hand, throw the right hand. You, you'll knock him out. Throw your right hand. And finally, Joe LaGuardia got upset, him trying to train me in the corner. Every time I went back to the corner, he was yelling. And he said, told him, he goes, shut up. I'm the trainer. Before I knock that wig off your head. <laughs> He's, and and uh, everybody loved it. It was very funny. It was that's, At the time, it was serious, but it was funny afterwards. That's that's great. That's a great story. Jenny, now... When you when you move your your record's incredible. I think it was forty six wins. Um, you you uh, you fought yeah, some of the forty two uh, forty two wins, six losses, two draws, and even fifty fights, Mac. And he stopped thirty two opponents, a sixty four percent knockout percentage, which is outstanding. Incredible. It's an incredible, incredible uh, record. And you fought some of the bigger, bigger fighters at that time. Can you tell us a little bit about your two, two bigger fights and and uh, and and what it was like to get in there and 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 fight some of the bigger names. And and even though you came up short in a couple of them, I mean, uh, that had to be a thrill, John. Well, for I first the first time, I mean, uh, when I was in California making the movie Rage of Bulls, they called me up to come back to fight Wilfredo Benitez. Right, because I was going to be his tune-up before he fought Sugar Ray. So I, I was a little confused. I said, "I'm fighting Benitez." He goes, "Yeah, it's not good for the title. Non-title fight, ten rounds in the Garden main event." So I came back and I fought once because I hadn't fought in three months. So I fight Danny Macaloon and I knocked him out in two rounds. It looked pretty good, and um, then I went right back into training. What happened is, I think I was looking too good in these gyms. That people watching me in all the gyms I went to, Times Square. Uh, Gleason's. I went to, of course, Gramercy was my gym, so I was mostly there. But somebody was watching because all of a sudden, I think it was like maybe two, three weeks before the fight, it was going to be in 1979. We get a phone call from Benitez's camp that he hurt his shoulder. He can't fight. That was, he probably did the right thing because I think I would have been able to beat him that night in the garden. If not beat him, do a lot better than I did finally when I fought, finally fought him. I was um, in my best shape of my life, physically, mentally. I was all by myself, no girls, nothing. And and I was just 100%. I knew I was ready to go. That was going to be my night. I'm not saying 100% I'm beating them, but I'm going to be. Well, you had knocked out Benita, Wilfred Benita's brother, brother Frankie, Frankie, who was a pretty good prospect. You stopped him in eight rounds before that. Do you think that influenced Wilfred Benitez's management to kind of go in another direction for the time being. I think so. I think what he called, I think they will get a little nervous because they, they way I knocked, I knocked out Macklin, even though Macklin was uh, past his prime, of course, but they seen the punching power and they, they watched me in the gyms, training all these different great fighters. 
And I think they got nervous. I think they thought it could possibly get up, be a big upset. And they didn't now, want to make that cr- Sugar Ray fight. When you cracked the top 10 in the welterweight division, John, it was like a murderous row. I mean, it was nearly, it was a terrible time to be a contender, a lower part, because on top of you was ben- Wilfred Benitez as the champion. And the contenders ahead of you in that division, Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns, Roberto Duran. That's crazy to get by that pack of guys. It's like, it feels like a near impossibility. Well, Angelo Dundee said to me in the garden, I'll never forget it. He said, Turner, congratulations. You're with the best four fighters I've ever seen. Yeah. He goes, yeah. you are with the best. I've never seen guys in that class all in their prime already. And he goes, I knew right there. I knew I was in with the best. I mean, I mean, you're talking about you're talking about legends, legends, uh, and and being right up there and ha- having to have a maybe a shot at one of those guys. I mean, that's he, Jack's right. I mean, maybe if you came around maybe five years earlier or or, or, or later, I mean, maybe you would have had a, a a better shot at maybe becoming a champion. A lot of has to do right place, right time. Well, uh, time is everything. Yeah, I know it disappoints John a little bit that he never got to fight Sugar Ray Leonard. Not, you once told me, John, not so much that you thought you would have won a loss, just the idea you wanted to be in the ring with Leonard. And Leonard would have been heavily favored to win that fight, you know, as far as the public went. But I want to point out uh, that within a year, one another, John and uh, Sugar Ray Leonard had a common opponent, Randy Milton, who John stopped in three rounds and less than a year before it took Leonard eight rounds to stop the same opponent. So if you want to do a little comparison, John came out, you know, much better, you know, with that one particular opponent. Um, yes. Um, actually, there was two guys that I fought that he fought, Louis de Bullweger and Randy Melton. And Randy Melton, when I was fighting him for the second time, he said to me, when are you going to fight Sugar Ray? And I found out after my career was over that that fight was offered to Vern several times when Sugar Ray was coming up. He wasn't champion yet. He was coming up. So a few times I, he wanted he offered that fight and he kept turning it down. For re- what reason, I don't know. He maybe thought I wasn't ready, but maybe he was waiting for the, for the big fight. I don't know. But he told me after my career was over, he, he was offered that fight a few times when he was coming up. As a professional fighter, he fought Randy Melton. He fought Louis the Bull Vega. I fought. I stopped both of them. Right. I mean, how bad would I have done? I'm just saying I would beat well, him. Well, Vega went that. the distance with Sugar Ray in his debut. Did you get? Did you spar with Roberto Duran? I remember you once showed me a photo of you and him together. Did you a have couple to... of rounds in the in the uh, Gleasons? How was it to spar with? Durant? I held my own. I held my own. But I and I'm telling you right now, that right after that that sparring session is when we got the phone call. Wow. wow. I, mean, I think I looked I looked too good. <laughs> I looked too good. I that was my this was my time. I'm not trying to brag about this was my I knew it mentally. Anybody and you everybody if you know boxing, you know when you get into the ring, it's mental. It's very mental. And I felt so good mentally and physically. I was in the best shape of my life. The best shape of my life. I was all by myself. I was with no no girlfriends, nobody nobody was there to uh to distract me. It was Best time of my life. I knew that was going to be my night. Now, John, even though you're a kind-hearted individual, by nature, 
you like to go at it hard during sparring. I mean, that was just seemed to be in your nature. You didn't like to hold back that much in the ring. But you know, on. you know, you know, you know personally. I know, believe me, I know personally. Unlike Vito, who knew how to work with God. But, uh, but John, to knock down Robert De Niro while you're auditioning for the part, I mean, that's carrying it to an extreme, don't you think? Mac, a raging bull, he goes out auditioning with De Niro and he decks De Niro. He nearly lost his part in the movie then. Why don't you tell us about it? Hello. Sorry, okay. Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. Well, why don't you tell us about it, John? When you knocked the Nero down, I'm well, sure you're embarrassed about it to this day. Oh, but it's kind of funny to look back on it. But my side of the story too is when they they all came into the into the dressing room when I was fighting Benitez right before Benitez fight. They came in to see what was going on in the dressing room. They went out to watch the fight. Monica Stacy, Rob De Niro, and Joe Pesci. So I after that fight was over. He came up to me, De Niro, and said to me, would you like to try out for a part in the movie? I said, sure. So he, they told me to come up Monday morning. I went up to the gym Monday morning. I didn't know that, that what was going to go happen, so they wanted us to get in the ring and spar a little bit, fill each other out. So I was kind of like, they wanted us to hit each other? So I was a little sure, you know, I, I didn't understand. Well, why would they want me to hit De Niro? So I, I did a little drop. I hit him with a body shot. I, dro I dropped down. I hit him with a body shot. He went down. They all jumped in the ring, Scorsese, then uh, Pesci, and, and uh, the Pete Savage, he wrote the book. He was a big guy. And he says, what, are you a wise guy? <laughs> so all of a sudden, I said, oh, my God, my movie career is over. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, Daniel saved me. He chased everybody in the ring, and he said, come on, let's go. And I made him look like, I made him look like a champ after that. I, I didn't touch him. But De Niro had a good attitude after you knocked him down. He didn't complain. Tell no, us his no. attitude. You respected his attitude. Not at all. He was. He saved me. He said. He told me later on. He told me we went in the dressing room. He goes, I'm sorry. He goes, I was just. It was nerves. <laughs> I was. Nervous. I was just nervous. I, I think it's there. awesome, Johnny. I think that's awesome. You should have followed up with a right to the head for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Oh, great. Hey, they want the real deal. They want the, the funny real deal. Part, the funny part about the whole thing is everybody. Everybody at this time in uh, in in our life, everybody loved it. They knocked him down. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, you want the real deal. You got the real deal. Don't, oh, don't, don't, yeah, that's that's awesome. So, with all these fighters that are in the welterweight division, a lot of fighters go up and down today in divisions, Johnny. You know, you'll see a lightweight jump up to welterweight and a welterweight jump up to super middle. Did you have any thoughts about jumping up and down to maybe get a shot at the title at one of the other titles? Or back then, was it just you fought in your division? Well, I started as a bantamweight in the Golden Gloves, 126. Then I went to 135. Then finally 147. I really had a hard time putting weight on. Right. So 147 was like actually 145. Between 145 and 140, I was. And that was the final weight. I couldn't go any further. And I was wanting, I didn't want to drop weight because I was a weak. So 147 was really good for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I just see it today. I maybe if maybe I, in fact, they don't have all the the different classes they have today, where you only got to drop a few pounds to move up and down a class. Now, now that's all you need to do to move up a class. Back then, the classes weren't as as as, as much as they are now. You only had, uh, you know, certain classes. So, um, 
again, too bad because I think you 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 could have moved around a little bit, maybe into the you know the light welterweight, uh, whatever whatever they got today, where you had a shot at the belt. And of course, they didn't have as many uh, as many belts either, Jaddy. Now they got you know you got three belts or one to one division. Maybe you could got a piece of it if it was done back then. Maybe you could have at least got one belt uh, back then if they had the same setup as it is today. Yeah, today they have so many different weights. All I remember is that when I had to go down to fight Frankie, I think it was 140 or 141. That was the Frankie weight. Had Benitez, to yeah. Frankie Benitez, yes. I had to go down. And that was the lowest I had because I'm now like really 147. So I had to go down to 142. And I remember they, we, they called us up at the gym at Gramsci because I went to Gramsci that morning to get just to work out so I get the weight down. I couldn't get the weight down. And they told me that he, Frankie couldn't get the weight down. So I finally, I made it. So I went, we went up to the commissioner's office on Chamber Street and uh, we made him make it. And he was, he was pretty upset. He was the, trying to make the 142 pound weight class for, for that fight. I don't know if it weakened him a lot, but it was, it was tough to get down to 142. But I would have done it. If that, listen, the fight for, for a title, I definitely would have done it. Now, you eventually did get the fight, Wilfred Benitez. Not at the time you felt you had it all together and you were at your absolute peak. Uh, you fought him in Miami, even though it should have been a New York fight. You right. fought him on the CBS Sports Spectacular, which was like an ongoing show. So you had a big national audience around the United States watching that fight and for Benitez it was his first fight back since he lost his title to Sugar Ray Leonard so Benitez was basically in his prime of his career when you fought him and you got stopped on cuts in nine rounds okay why don't you tell us about that fight well like I say everything with boxing you know is, is very mental and I, I should have pulled out when they when they made the weigh in four days or three days it was three days three days before the fight, uh, they because he couldn't make the weight, he would have been too weak to fight me. So they needed three days for him to get back his strength, because he was uh, having a lot of problems getting down to one fifty. That was the uh, the contract one fifty, and uh, at the time, Angelo Dundee said to me because he was working the, the fight. He said to me, Turner, he told you on the side. He said, pull out. He said, don't take the fight. He says, they're pulling the fast one. He goes, he's going to come in the, in, the, in the ring that night, a middleweight. And what you will say, if you ever watch the fight again, listen closely, you'll hear him say it on TV. That's a middleweight fighting a welterweight. He says it on TV. So um, I should have pulled out. But it was, of course, then it was, um, I was thinking about the money. Sure. It wasn't sure. a lot, but I needed it. Yeah, when you were doing the movie Raging Bull, reportedly they were impressed with you, and there was some talk about you hanging around Hollywood. You were there, I believe, nine weeks. Uh, you had a career choice to make. I mean, fighters have been known to become actors, you know, and give up their career. Case in point would be a Tony Danza, for example. Uh, did that cross, was it a serious consideration by you to maybe give up boxing and stay in Hollywood and see what you could do acting-wise? Well, there were a few big people out there that wanted me to stay out there and, and stick with it. I wasn't really, I didn't feel like I was an actor. I felt more of, of a fighter, and that's what I did. But they really wanted me to stay out there at the time. 
Uh, I was a good-looking kid. I had a lot of uh, potential. Plus, what he called um, a lot. Of, you know, a lot of guys wanted. They thought I was a great stunt man. <laughs> they they couldn't believe the way I used to make my to fall down and the way I, the, I reacted to, to the to the punches, especially going through the ropes. They just couldn't believe. It. I mean, I must have did it twenty times. They couldn't believe how I did that. They wanted me to be a stunt man. Then there was a sis Corman. She was very big. She wanted me to go under be under her, and she wanted me to get me acting jobs. But I felt that at that time I, I was. I think that's when I was fifth in the world. I was ready to fight. I, I felt like I was going to fight Sugar Ray next. So I I thought that that my thing was boxing. I couldn't. Uh, I, I was an actor, so I didn't want to take a chance. Stuntman, John, you hurt your back during the filming. Why don't you tell us about that? So how good a stuntman could he have been? <laughs> I didn't get that. Say that again? You say you hurt your back during the filming, right? Tell us about yes. that. You had a device, something, that was a harness that was supposed to protect you that snapped us. Why don't you oh, tell yeah. us about that? Now, John played the part of Laurent the Thal. I hope I'm pronouncing right, a Frenchman who was beating LaMada on points, and LaMada stopped him with 13 seconds to go in the fight. So John played the opponent that LaMada slash De Niro was kind of teeing off on at the end of the fight to score a sensational knockout. Yeah, I well, that. Tell us how you got hurt, John, during the filming. Because I kept going down. That was one thing, going through the ropes and hitting my back. I must—I don't know how many times I did it. But the other one was when I was on the, a dolly and I was getting hit. I was hit with um, punches. It wasn't even De Niro at the time, but it was my friend Kevin Mann throwing punches at me. And I'm just reacting to the punches. And, and I'm on the dolly. The dolly broke and I fell on my back really bad. Wow. Thank but. Um, I got over it. They were really nervous. They go, you okay? You okay? They were like, you know, I don't know what we were supposed to do this or not. Maybe we weren't, we weren't supposed to do it. It was uh, too dangerous or whatever. But they were, <laughs> they were very upset and nervous about it because uh, the, 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 the guy that played Sugar Ray Robinson, Johnny Bonds, he gave them a little bit of a hard time about getting knocked out of the ring. Every time he went out of the ring, he wanted an extra $100. Because that part there where he, he gets knocked out of the ring by Jake LaMotta. It's a part there in one of the fights. And he wanted an extra hundred. So they thought maybe they would have a problem with me. But I, I didn't even think about it. I just like, you know, I said, okay, I'll be, I'll be all right. And I, I, got, I got past it. But I did hurt my back. And I, it, did, it, did, it did hurt me later on in life. Wow. wow. With a job. With a job. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, job. okay. You had gotten, uh, during the filming of the movie, did you get to know Jake Lamada? You know, with the movie oh, yes. oh, yes. What, what were your impressions of Jake? Was he as portrayed in the movie? Well, I the, the thing with Jake, he would come down every night because he was the same hotel as us, and he was just like kidding around and go, who's treating me tonight? So we would sit down and we, we'd talk to him. And he tells stories. That's what I loved about it, because he tells stories. He was very, of course, he was very happy and in good mood because they're making a great movie about movie about him. So he was very happy about that. And he was in a great mood at the time. It wasn't nasty, that nasty. So what he called, um, you know, you hear a, great, a lot of stories about him. But we got him at the best time of his life. And we were very happy with, um, he did a couple of funny things. And when we were at having dinner, he would like, 
just it was a, a lady stand, sitting next to him, a, girl, a young lady, and he just stared at the lady like. And I'm thinking, does he know her? Because the way he's staring at us like a, a bear that's real hungry. And he, <laughs> all, all of a sudden, he by the neck and starts making out with her. I was like, I was, I was, I was, I, I walked away. I started laughing. It's the way he did it. And she got nervous, but I think she liked it. <laughs> and he was young. He was young at the time. Wow, that's awesome. No, hey, listen, he, listen, was uh, he, was, he was a character. Yes, he, yes, he was. And, uh, yeah, Jack has talked to me about it, too. Hey, Johnny, listen, we, we got to let you go. We got to move on. Uh, we appreciate you coming in. Great interview. Great talking to you. I'm glad Jack set you up. I mean, coming on the show. Pleasure having you on. You have a great day, Johnny. What? I'm sorry. Yeah, have a great weekend. Thank, thank you very Take much. Care, Take care, Johnny. Thank you. Bye-bye. So there you go, folks. Johnny Turner. Former welterweight contender, title contender, uh, back when Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, uh, a great, great stable, Benitez. Uh, Roberta Duran. I mean, what a group to get past. It's nearly criminal task a guy to get past. Yeah, right, right. I mean, you've got to be a superman to get Murderous row. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, sir. So, folks, we're going to take a last break for the day. We'll be back on the other side, uh, talk a little bit more sports. Again, uh, fantastic having Johnny Turner on. Great interview, Jack. Thanks for getting him. Folks, we'll be right back after these messages. Do, do, do. Yeah. Bop, bop. I heard you want to be a frito bandido like me. You do? Then you must sing the bandido song. Let's sing together. You just follow the bouncing Fritos corn chips bag. Ay, 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 ay. I am the Frito Bandido. Hey, I like Fritos corn chips. I love them, I do. I want when you Fritos hear the word asthma, you probably think of shortness of breath, coughing, inhaling. Lots of things can trigger asthma. Oh, I am the Frito Bandido. Give me Fritos corn chips and I'll be your friend. The Frito Bandido, you must not offend. Now, boys and girls, you are Frito Bandidos too. You sing the Frito Bandido song and you look for crunchy Fritos corn chips. That's nice. Munch, munch, munchy, munchy Fritos corn chips. When you hear the word asthma, you probably think of shortness of breath, coughing, or inhalers. Lots of things can trigger asthma, but the fact is that asthma doesn't just attack, it can kill. But with proper medical management, asthma is controllable. If you experience shortness of breath, wheezing, tightness in your chest, or persistent nighttime coughing, you may have asthma. See your doctor and get the facts. You'll breathe easier. For more information, call 211-INFO-LINE. A message from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Keeping Connecticut healthy. My baloney has a first name. It's O S C A R. My baloney has a second name. It's M A Y E R. Oh, I love to eat it every day. And if you ask me why, I'll say, cause Oscar Mayer has a way with B O L O G N A. Oscar Mayer, the first name in Bologna. How's that? We all make choices. When it comes to alcohol, 
kids make choices whether to drink or not. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Remember, I'm going to Alex's party tonight and sleeping over. Hey, Anne, have a seat for a second. Remind me about that party again. Alex is just and like adults make choices whether to talk about it. That's true of parents and every other trusted adult in a kid's life. Kids want to know our expectations when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. They want guidance and honest answers to their questions. And it makes a difference when the message is consistent and part of everyday conversations. So talk with your kids and help lead them on a positive path. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. I mean, you can see right now, without LeBron, Lakers are, are struggling. Let me tell you about a team I hate, all right? I know the Dallas Cowboys fan is here, so I had to make sure he knew how much I hate this Oh, team. I'm ready. I've often said that the people who run baseball, they try very hard to ruin it. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't have a problem saying it to his face. Oh, Brooklyn. Hey, isn't he? Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show. Uh, our last segment for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, Jack Hirsch. Uh, just had a great guest on. Jack set us up with uh, Johnny Turner, former welterweight contender uh, during days of Durant, Hearns, uh, Leonard, uh, Benitez, I mean, and still made the top five. Uh, so... Jack, just real quick on that. It seems like, you know, we talk about it today, how fighters pick and choose who they fight. That was going on back then, too. Because if Leonard was scheduled or maybe had a shot at fighting Turner and kind of turned it down, it looks like those are the way things have been handled all the time. It's been that way throughout history, Mac. I mean, people like to knock the modern-day fighters. But look, let's take some of the all-time greats. Sugar Ray Robinson never fought Charlie Burley, a great fighter. There was a way to avoid him. Jack Dempsey didn't fight Harry Wills. Jack Johnson didn't have a rematch with Sam Langford. You know, historically, fighters pick and choose. I can understand if it's done as a business consideration because the idea is to get the most amount of money and taking the least amount of risk. But the point is, fighters historically have always picked and cho chosen who they fought, especially later in their career when sure. they're no longer in their prime. That's when they become extra, you know, careful. But yeah. listen, and kudos to Sugar Ray Leonard. He did fight them all, Benitez, Duran, Hearns. Right. But, you know, there were different Hagler. There were different opportunities, you know, at the moment to take and not to take. So it's not unusual for fighters avoiding other fighters. Yeah, the days of John L. Sullivan just coming in and challenging everybody in town is over, right? Like that that's long, long, long time ago. So um John L would Sean L would go into a bar and say, say I could lick any blankety blank in the house. 
Right. You know, basically, you do that today, you get arrested, you go to jail. <laughs> yes. In John L.'s time, it was glorified. That was a man's man in John L. Sullivan's time. Yes. World heavyweight champion from 1882 to 1892, John yes. L. Sullivan. Yes, yes. Used to work out with beer kegs, as I saw old uh, clips of him. Um, so let's get back into the NFL. You brought up the uh, some of the things in the NFL owners meeting. Uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the mandatory Rooney rule now of minorities or women uh, having to be signed for one year out of an NFL fund um, to try to, I don't know, break in some some new things. Kind of, I think it kind of covers up what happened to Flores. They had to do something and they felt this was a step in the right direction and owners went along with it. Um, so good for them. There also was a change to the overtime rule, Jack. And you know how I feel about this. In playoffs, both teams are going to get to touch the ball now. Um, I think we're coming – we're going too far away from the natural flow of things where a defense has to stop an offense uh, for you to win. Now we want to – it's like a participation trophy. Everybody gets a chance. Um, I, you know, the Buffalo game, maybe Buffalo came back and scored. Maybe they couldn't. But Cincinnati, uh, you know, when they played the next following week, they had a chance and they didn't. So it worked out. Um, I just I, I think you, you're starting to bog down with too many rules. And if both teams continue to score, what is it going to be, 80 to 78? I mean, it, to me, you're, you're just taking something and making it uh, uh, more convoluted, more complex. And, and, and the game may never end. So uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Now, my thoughts are just win the darn game in regulation. Don't complain if you're a team. Win it in regulation. And the NFL had changed it. It used to be sudden death where a team could get a field goal in overtime and they can win the game. But in this day and age, the kickers can kick the ball so far. That's not the solution. So the NFL, their system in place wasn't that bad. A field goal wouldn't win it. They'd have to score six points take it into the end zone and that still doesn't make people happy because of what happened in the kansas city buffalo playoff game because the offenses won fire and they felt weber got the ball first and overtime was going to get a touchdown <clears throat> but no one points out the kansas city cincinnati game kansas city got the ball first in overtime and couldn't execute and couldn't even get into field goal range you know to even you know give themselves a chance to win a field goal still would have meant Cincinnati would have gotten it back, but there's got to be an end to these games at some point, maybe just make it a whole quarter, let them play. Whoever's ahead at the end of the overtime quarter wins, but, but there'd still be complaints. What happens if they're tied up at the end of five quarters? You're not going to have a whole sixth quarter. That would be brutal making them players play six quarters of a game. So then what do you decide? Whoever gets a field goal first wins after the fifth quarter. That would still leave people unhappy. You want to know something, Mac? No matter what you do, people aren't going to be happy. People are still going to complain. And this new rule change arises, like I said, out of the Buffalo-Kansas City game. The Buffalo Bills are complaining. But you want to know something, guys? If you're a Bill fan, a Bill supporter... You had a lead with 13 seconds to go, and the Chiefs had it on their own 25-yard line, and your defense 
with 13 seconds, couldn't make a play to keep him out of field goal range. The Chiefs are able to get into field goal range with 13 seconds, and you're complaining that the rules undid you. Yeah. I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself. 13 lousy seconds, and the Bills couldn't keep the Chiefs out of field goal range when they won their own 25-yard line. That's a disgrace. That's what we should be focusing on, not the overtime rule, the lousy pass rush of the Buffalo Bills at that point in the game, the lousy play of, the, of their secondary. Let's focus on that. Let's not focus on the rules. I agree. I agree 100%, Jack. It just, it just, it, it's just, it's, everybody, everybody just conforms to whatever to make, uh, and it's not everybody happy. There's just, it's maybe half, maybe less than half. But the NFL, uh, they, I don't get it sometimes. Um, another thing, Andy Dalton gets signed by the Saints for a year, Jack. Uh, you know, uh, he's he's a great backup. In fact, he could be a starter. Uh, Winston falters. Has Dalton come right in? This is going to tell you that the Saints are not going to have a good year. Look, they have Jamie Jamius Winston back. They have uh, – Taysom Hill, who's going to maybe play some tight end, some receiver, be ready to play at quarterback. So it's going to come down to competing for the job between Jameis Winston and Andy Dalton. So they're not really ready at quarterback. I mean, Andy Dalton at this point in his career is no more than a viable backup. But that's not why he's gone to New Orleans. He sees an opportunity to start. And I'm sure they promised him he's going to get to compete for the starting position. <clears throat> you know, with the Saints, it's worth noting, after 13 years in the league, Malcolm Jenkins has announced his retirement. And I'm sure Pax, the Philly guy, will have something to say on that when he's on our show tomorrow. Because Malcolm Jenkins was a former Philadelphia Eagle when they won their Super Bowl and went to the Saints. So he's retiring after 13 years in the league. Great defensive safety. Great defensive safety he was. Um, so that was interesting to me as far as as far as the NFL went with uh with Dalton going there. Um, a lot of Dallas Cowboy media is all over the Cowboys for not not signing an impact player. The Dallas Cowboys uh, pretty much re-signed their own players, they really don't sign free agents, they they haven't. For a long time, they don't go and get the best receiver or the best running back available or best defensive pass rusher available like the other teams did this year. And they're starting to fall. Uh, Jerry Jones, you hear the, the mumblings about, well, we're that close. We're a playoff team. Why aren't you doing this like the other teams are doing? But it seems that Dallas just doesn't do that, Jack. You know, I'm a little puzzled. I thought Dallas, of all the teams who tried to make a big splash, shake things up a little bit, but they haven't done it. Maybe they're using logic over motion because when you look at the Cowboy year last year, they were 12-5 and five in the regular season. They won their division. And in the playoffs, they barely lost to the 49ers who beat the Packers. And the 49ers barely lost to the Rams meaning with a couple of breaks here and there and playing just a little better. The Cowboys conceivably could have gone to the Super Bowl last year. I mean, they were within range. So maybe they're thinking, well, we just have to make certain adjustments, get under the cap. They moved on from Amari Cooper, for example. 
but they really haven't made a splash. Somehow you get the feeling that team has regressed a little bit. But then again, when you're in the NFC East, they might be thinking, well, we're still the best team in the NFC East. We could still go to the playoffs and make a kind of certain adjustments on the fly. But gone are the days when you'll have Jerry Jones sign a Deion Sanders, you know, make that bold move, even though it could hurt him as far as the cap situation goes. It seems like the Cowboys have gotten a little more conservative, a little more business-like, which, you know, isn't in their mojo. No, I mean, I mean, since those days, Jack, they really haven't done that. Uh, you know, the Charles Haley, the, the uh, you know, the, as you mentioned, Deion Sanders, they haven't done that. And they haven't won since. They haven't gone to Super Bowl since then. So, uh, like I said, Dallas Media kind of uh, jumping on them a little bit uh, about that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think Matt, the Eagles... but do you get the feeling teams have gone backwards in the NFC? All the teams have seemed to have gone backwards. Someone has to go to the Super Bowl. <clears throat> the Packers, we say, aren't quite as good as they were. The Rams maybe are going to slide a little backwards, too. They've lost a guy like Von Miller. They, you know, Robert Woods moved to Tennessee. So maybe they won't be as good. The 49ers have question marks whether they picked out who's going to quarterback for them. The Cowboys have question marks. I, You know, Tampa Bay maybe isn't quite the same team they would have won the Super Bowl. Maybe they're just a tad below that. So we kind of wonder with the NFC, someone has to go to the big dance, but yeah. no one has really stepped up to quite take the initiative. Yeah, I, listen, I agree. The AFC has made all the major moves this year, all the major signings, all the major uh, – they just look like a, the better division this year, Jack. In fact, I, I, I think there's like four or five teams in the AFC right now that could viably go to the Super Bowl. So, the uh, AFC has teams that are on the rise. The yeah. perception is – the Dolphins on the rise, the Chargers on the rise, you know, teams that are going to be the next wave. And then you have the old standbys who you can never count out, like Kansas City, New England. And, uh, you know, it's the AFC. The teams seem to have a little more upside there, right, right at the moment than the teams in the NFC. And a lot more better younger quarterbacks too, Jack. I think that's key over in the AFC. A lot better younger quarterbacks than they have right now in the NFC. So, I mean, you may be talking years, uh, AFC uh, going to Super Bowl and winning. I mean, I'm not counting the NFC out because it doesn't really matter when you get to the Super Bowl. It matters how good you play that game. But uh, if you're going to just look at the players, the young quarterbacks, the young wide receivers, um, you know, the defensive rushers, uh, they're all in the AFC. So it's going to be interesting to see what the NFC does. Well, you're mentioning young quarterbacks. It's going to be really interesting to see last year's crap of quarterbacks, how they're going to develop this year. Unlike you, Mac, I'm not a believer you give a quarterback a few years if he's not showing a lot of progress. I really don't believe that because I think you're wasting your time on that. And even like a Zach Wilson, it's his second year. If the Jets have addressed the concerns on the offensive line, have gotten him the help he needs at the receiver position, and he's not at least improving, a clear improvement, I move on. You know, yeah. if, I, if I'm able to get a replacement, because, you know, you, you want situations like Sam Donald, 
who, by the way, Carolina says is in the lead for the starting job. I never heard a term like that, Mac. You're in the lead for the starting job, but you better look behind your back because someone is catching up on you, you know, in that race. Yeah, yeah. You're being honest with Sam Donald, he's in the lead right now. But when you talk about having Cam Newton as the backup, you know there are problems there. You, like, like I've said to you, Mac, if Burrow and Herbert could show what they can do in their rookie year, it's not too much to expect the others. Trevor Lawrence is going to be intriguing. He had a big final game of the regular season against the Indianapolis Colts, not the Colts out of the playoffs. And I remember saying before that game, this is a big game. Because if Trevor Lawrence performs really well in that last game, it's going to have a feel-good story to it going into the offseason. And that's what's happened with Jacksonville. No one is getting on Trevor Lawrence's case saying, oh, he had a real poor rookie season because he had a great final game to knock off a good Colts team and keep him out of the playoffs. But is that an aberration? Is it when the regular season starts next year, is he going to struggle a lot? And does it look like he's going to get out of it? These are questions, just like with the 49ers. They keep saying, well, Trey Lance is going to be our starter. They keep saying it. But there's confusion in San Francisco. Are they going to hold on to Jimmy G, you know, for now? I mean, they have – what's the situation there? I mean, they they made it, made it clear they expect Trey Lance to be their quarterback of the future and maybe as early as next season. But they, have, but they haven't made an absolute commitment. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I don't think they really know yet. I mean, you, you can only get so much out of practice, Jack. I mean, I know, you know, you make a, your evaluations out of practice and you can see who really is a good quarterback and who's not, or potentially, because game and practice is still the And I'm not, sure, I'm not sure, Mac, that Bill Belichick is 100% sold on Mac Jones I'm not either. long term. I'm not either. Keep in mind, uh, you know, Bill Belichick's the same guy that moved on from Drew Bledsoe years ago and took, you know, fly on Tom Brady. If someone looks good in camp and Mac Jones is struggling a little bit, Bill Belichick is a win-now guy. He would actually replace Mac Jones, as crazy as it seems. Mac Jones had a very good rookie year, but he was in the right situation, let's be honest. If he was in a different situation, chances are he wouldn't have looked as good. But, you know, Mac Jones didn't show a tremendous amount of upside. Like, oh, Mac Jones is going to be a great quarterback in this league. He didn't have a – he didn't create the buzz that Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert did. I agree. Not nearly as much. I definitely agree. So, talking about, you know, making decisions at quarterback, the Indianapolis Colts owner came out during uh, the the, uh, combine and said – they made a serious mistake. It was obvious that the Carson Wentz era was a huge mistake that, you know, he, they had to move on from him. They weren't going to, like you say, they weren't going to stick up with something that they thought wasn't right and let it go, uh, you know, let it go another couple of years. Uh, you know, he, they, in fact, I think they would have cut him. I think uh, if the commandos waited a little bit, they could have got him for nothing. But do you, do you agree with the owner? who just traded his number one quarterback to another team coming out and blaming him totally for the failure in that game. Because honestly, Jack, 
He did make some bad decisions throwing the ball uh, in that game. But the defense did not stop the Jags. They were clearly out coach. I mean, Frank Wright is supposed to be this great coach, and the Jags beat him. So, I mean, there's enough blame to go around. Why doesn't he say anything about his coach? Why doesn't he say anything about his defensive coordinator? Why is he putting all these, these uh, frustrations on his ex-quarterback? Um, you know, I, I don't think Wentz is a great quarterback either. But do you think it's right for an owner to come out after the, the thing is over? Do you think that's professional, calling Wentz a mistake like he did? Well, Jim Ursadiona, he's kind of tried to walk back his comments after originally being upset. And listen, this is Frank Reich's guy. And Jim Ursay didn't fire Frank Reich. Let's notice that. But he's obviously upset with him. He's upset they didn't make the playoffs. In the results business, the Colts had a good team. Some people thought they might even go to the Super Bowl. And the way they didn't make the playoffs, Mac. To lose to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Think of that, Mac. The Jacksonville Jaguars, the team with the worst record in the NFL, was the team that knocked the Indianapolis Colts out of the playoffs. That's absolutely inexcusable, okay, to lose a game like that. He has every right to be upset, you know, that his uh, team didn't make the playoffs and the way they didn't make the playoffs. Now, you know, Carson Wentz was Frank Reich's guy at Philadelphia. He was his offensive coordinator when they won the Super Bowl. So he was willing to stake his reputation on it. We don't know what was said beforehand. Maybe Jim Irsay a year ago said, you sure you want Carson Wentz? I don't have a good feeling about him. I'm not for having him here from my end, but if you say so, I'll go along with you, but I'm not too thrilled about it. And if that went, if that conversation went down, and then to see Carson Wentz fold up the second half of the season the way he did and also show no leadership qualities within the organization, you know, in the locker room, dealing with the media, that's a right to tick Jim Irsay off. You know, because he may have had a feeling I told you so. And you guys didn't want to listen to me, but I allowed you to do it. Now I'm taking charge. But I'll agree with you, Mac. There's no need to knock Carson Wentz when he's, you know, out the door. Just basically say, you know, you're sorry. It didn't work out. I think the change is in order. But he let his ill feelings maybe get out a little more than they should. I mean, the change says it all. You took action. We know you you weren't happy with Carson Wentz. You don't have to, you know. And Frank uh, Reich apologized. Frank Reich shouldn't be apologizing about the move. You know, that's interesting. He could have said, look, it didn't work out. You know, it's uh, it's partly on Carson, partly on me. You know, right. I could have maybe did a better job, you know. But the idea of Frank Reich apologizing, what are you apologizing about? Right. Right. I agree. I agree. And speaking now, the thing interesting to me, Jack, about two moves, one, of course, is Carson Wentz. The other one is the Baker Mayfield uh, debacle where they didn't tell him that they were going to talk to Watson. And and now they kind of uh, say they feel bad about it. But there has not been one player on either of these teams that have come out in defense 
of these quarterbacks. Not one player from the Colts said, hey, wait, wait a minute, man. He did the best he could. He was a good quarterback. Not one player from the Colts did that. And not one player from the Browns has done that about Baker Mayfield. To me, that says a lot about their leadership quality in the locker room. Because when you lose a quarterback that's been your quarterback for one or two years, or in Baker's case, even more, I would imagine there would be some relationship there. But nothing. Crickets, Jeff. No, I mean, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, a little might have to do, Mac, with jealousy a little bit. You know, Baker Mayfield and all those progressive commercials, so probably some of the players were mumbling about that, you know, being built up as a star. I wasn't the biggest Baker Mayfield fan. Uh, you know, when they drafted him number one overall, I wasn't high on him. You know, he had a good rookie year, and then, in his third year in the league, he performed fairly well. Last year, he made some dreadful decisions. I mean, late in the season, you know, just watching the Browns play the Green Bay Packers, he made some awful throws. And when they went into halftime and they talked to the NFL analysts, even Jimmy Johnson was like scratching his head like, what's Baker Mayfield doing? And I remember Jimmy Johnson said, well, you can't replace him till you get someone better. Right. In other words, Jimmy Johnson's attitude was, I will replace him if I could get someone better. And the Browns got someone you know better than Deshaun sure. Watson. So yeah. it was an easy decision to make. I mean, who wouldn't want to have Deshaun Watson quarterbacking their team? And I'm not talking about outside factors. I'm not going yeah. there with that. On the, on the field instead of Baker Mayfield. But what's revealing, there's not a market for Baker Mayfield. Now, some people are saying, well, the price tag is too high, $18 million. Yeah. $18 million is cheap for a starting quarterback in the yeah, NFL. But he'd have to be a starter, Jack. And I don't know what a team. Starter, a starter. Why didn't the Saints go after Baker Mayfield? They're going after Andy Dalton instead of Baker Mayfield. Yeah, yeah. And Cleveland reportedly has set a bit of a higher asking price, and they've come down a bit. A number two draft choice would get a team Baker Mayfield if they were willing to pay a salary too. And you think of it, that's not so steep a price. The Carolina Panthers, they could offer like a number three and a number six, and they can get Baker Mayfield on their team and let him compete with Sam Darnold. Yet they're not going that route. The Saints didn't. The Panthers aren't. I mean, where's a landing spot for Baker Mayfield? Because Cleveland's going to have to eat a salary eventually because no team is negotiating for Baker Mayfield. So what they're eventually going to have to do is take a low-level draft choice, like a fifth-round choice, and pay most of his salary to move on from Baker Mayfield because he's not staying with Cleveland. They already committed to their, a backup in Jacoby Brissett. I agree. I agree, Jack. I agree. It's, that's just a crazy situation there with all uh, both those quarterbacks. Um, I don't well, know. more interesting is Jarvis Landry. He's a free agent of Brown wide receiver. I would like to see the Jets, you know, somehow pick him up, an experienced wide receiver like that. It would be mm -hmm. helpful. I don't know with Deshaun Watson there. He may change his mind and stay with Cleveland. Real quick at NBL MLB news, uh, you know we have the uh, the uh, um, 
Robinson Cano with the Mets is going to try to play first base. Of course, not start. They got a starter. But they're going to try and move him over and experiment with him at first. And we also have Pujols going back to St. Louis um, for, I guess, to finish out his career. Uh, those are the two biggest stories I got of the MLB. I don't know about I don't know about Pujols. I mean, he played DH, I guess. Um, he's I, I guess he could sub in the first base. Uh, good for him. Good face for St. Louis if if that's what they wanted to do. Uh, and also with Cano, I mean, I don't even know if what he's is is he can he play? Is his suspension over? I don't know. It's well, he's in camp with the Mets. It's completely over. Okay. Uh, and the part of Pujols, Pujols can still contribute. He's not a star. He could contribute as a pinch hitter, as a DH. I mean, uh, he he's an average player at this point in right, his career. Right, right. And maybe he could have an above-average season. Who knows? With all the players, part-timers out there, maybe he can help the Cardinals, maybe not. Uh, Robinson Cano's 39 years old. He's a second baseman. And he probably doesn't have the range that he used to have, especially coming off a one-year layoff. And it's funny about first base. Whenever they're looking to hide someone on the field, they seem to make him a first baseman. Like old Mickey Mantle was made a first baseman. Late in his career, Joe DiMaggio was made a first baseman. And Robinson, can know one thing he, he can do, you know, he can pick up ground balls. It's sure. a question of range at second base because you do have to move around more at second base than you do at first base. You have to get involved with the double play. You have to run for ground ball in the hole and make the turn and throw to first. So let's see how it works. But don't the Mets have a first baseman by the name of Pete Alonso? That's what I'm saying. It's a I bad. mean, how many games can Robinson Cano play there? Let's say Pete Alonso is good for 140 games so there if he's healthy. That's what the case would be. But maybe the Mets with the DH coming to the National League, 140 games for Alonso at first might mean 110 games at first, and they may, might make Alonso DH the other games, yeah. and maybe that would open up a little more first-base play for Robinson Cano. You know, maybe you'll play a little at first, a little at second, a little DH. But Robinson Cano has two years left on his contract at $24 million a year, and that's a steep price. Believe me, this is one contract if the Mets felt they could get out from under they would. And why didn't they try it? The guy got suspended a year for PDs. As far as I'm concerned, he broke the spirit of the contract. But I guess the Mets don't want to deal with the Players Association going to court. And Steve Cohn probably said, I'll just pay him the money and let's let's see what he can, can contribute to the team. I agree. So, folks, we're coming to the end of the show. I want to talk to you about a little bit. We've been pumping some of the Roku uh, specials and Northeast streaming sports specials. 28 April, we'll be having our draft show as we did last year. We'll start a half an hour before the draft. We're going to have a lot of live reports, guys, from the draft itself. Uh, Jamie Pags will be there. Uh, the Jetman will be there. Uh, we're going to have a lot of former NFL stars uh, that will come in and uh, guest spots uh, when their teams are about to pick. Uh, we'll have Jack and me. We'll try and get Keith and Robert back this year also. So a lot of live reports from the NFL draft. We'll be going through it with you for the whole first round. 
28 April. So join us and have a lot of fun as we go over the NFL draft. So, guys, have a great Thursday. We'll be back tomorrow. Byron Williams, Keith Angle, and uh, the Philly sports guy. Uh, have a great Thursday night, and we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day, folks.